Yes, here's another shorter bonus episode with extra content from my interview with Sarah Esther Maslin, Brazil correspondent at The Economist. This bonus content is for those of you who want to dive in slightly deeper on how The Economist works, which unfortunately there wasn't time for in the standard full-length episode. If you like this kind of thing, which I also did for my interview with Jonah Kessel, Director of Cinematography at The New York Times, please drop me a line at foreignpod at gmail.com. I still don't know what to think about these, if they're a good or a bad idea, so even if you think it's not your cup of tea, do let me know. And then, also, if you're listening to this first, I would definitely suggest circling back and listening to the full interview with Sarah. This bonus content jumps around a bit without transitions, so just be aware of that if there are any jarring changes of subject. Thanks for listening, and talk to you in a couple weeks when the next full episode drops on Sunday, February 14th. Oh, yeah. So I used to work for a publication that was kind of modeled on The Economist called China Economic Review. And I bring that up just because that it was in the style of The Economist. So there were also no bylines. It was kind of this uniform house style. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on I remember at the time it bothered me not having a byline, but also at the same time, I was much less experienced. I had fewer clips. And at this point, I've written, you know, hundreds of articles. I'm not so obsessed about every single clip. I don't think it would bother me as much now as it did back then. But do you have any thoughts you can share on that? I think it bothered me maybe a little bit more when I was a freelancer, because I felt like people who were reading it wouldn't necessarily know that I was writing it. And now that I'm on staff, I am not as anxious about long term whether I'm going to have a career as a journalist or not. And so as you said, the kind of the value of every clip is, I guess, less important. But I've also kind of come to see the benefit of it, which is that I think it makes the environment more collaborative. And I think it makes it easier for files from different people to come into a story and then either a lead writer, which is sometimes me, or an editor feels at liberty to really take the words or the paragraphs and craft it into the thing that is the best without worrying about whose name is going to come first and where their file sort of fits and where they're based. With social media these days and the internet, it's pretty easy to find out who's written a given story. There's no rule that we can't tweet our story out or say that we've written a story. And I think people who pay attention to Brazil tend to know that if there's a story about Brazil and The Economist, it's written by me. So I guess it bothers me less than it used to. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there is always jockeying if it's a really big story for whose name comes first and that sort of thing. So I could see having the bullshit of that out of the way (laughs) could bring some benefits for sure. Um, Do you feel like you get a kind of good sense of how The Economist works? I wasn't all that familiar with The Economist before I started writing for it as a freelancer. I think nowadays The Economist has really become better known in the United States. We have half of our readers in the U.S., but that wasn't the case even just five or six years ago when I started writing for them and I didn't know the publication that well. So one thing that's been really interesting to me as I've work for them is, I guess, putting aside some of the assumptions that I had made about the publication. I thought that it was sort of dry. And when I started reading it, I realized actually it could be really witty and funny from time to time. And I assumed that it was kind of a conservative publication because it's often described that way when 
actually it likes to identify as classically liberal, which means that it's extremely progressive on a lot of social issues. And in terms of economics, it does believe in capitalism and in the free market. But certainly I wouldn't call it conservative in the way that we understand that in the U.S. I I was a little bit worried when I first joined and took this job that I would be sort of limited by writing for a publication, both because of length and the style that they have. You know, it is a very distinct voice. And I found, for the most part, that I've really been able to do the kinds of stories that I want to do. I can't think of a time when I said, I want to do this story and I want to do it in this way that I've had an editor say no. I mean, often there's a whole lot of questions and they really push to make sense of, you know, what is it that you're actually doing and why are you doing it and why is this the right time and why are you going to go to this place? But we're really lucky that it's one of the publications that still has the resources to send correspondents far and wide to bring back an understanding of what's happening in a given place and what it means both for the people living in that place and the world as a whole. And I didn't mean this to be a sort of you know a PR for The Economist, but I, I don't know. I guess maybe it kind of is a little bit because people who are listening to this podcast, I assume, are ambitious journalists of every sort at different places in their careers. And I, I think as an American and someone who was doing a lot of long form work, wasn't familiar with The Economist and have found that it's been a, a terrific place to do a really interesting combination of news stories and longer features and sort of positively surprised me in that way. That's great. And yeah, no, I'm familiar with The Economist. I, you know, in college, I read The Economist a lot. And that's definitely how I learned the majority of economics is reading about it. And most of that was in The Economist. And yeah, I don't know, I guess I came in kind of more as a business financial reporter into the industry. So I think I get what they're all about. And this past year, I started reading you guys again a bit more. I got a free whatever subscription for a bit. And then I realized there was a glitch and it never kicked me out. So I just kept reading it. Um, And uh, they've since kicked me out. So now I read your articles. And like you said, I presume if it's about Brazil that you're writing it. And honestly, going back to the byline thing, most normal people don't care anyway, don't really look or necessarily register the byline. It's more of people in the know and people in the know are probably on Twitter and the people who matter know um, in the industry at least. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that that does make sense given your background that you would have read. I didn't really read it. And I think that's because my background was one of social sciences and history. And I had a class at the University of Buenos Aires that was called Pensamiento Latinoamericano para la Integración, which is like Latin American integrationist thought, which could have just as easily been called Latin American anti-imperialism. It's a very (laughs) skeptical of the U.S. and skeptical of capitalism and skeptical of the way that richer countries had meddled in Latin America during the Cold War. And so I think it's been really, really fascinating for me to have had that background and then now be working at a publication that is critical of certain decisions that were made and is critical now of certain aspects of capitalism and interventionism and so on and so forth, but at the same time does take a pragmatic and globally aware view of the role of the US and England and China now, bigger, more powerful countries, and you know, calls them out when they're committing human rights abuses and 
inciting violence and white nationalism and all the other awful things that Trump has done. I mean, we certainly give voice to the vulnerable and the voiceless in a lot of occasions. But, you know, we also consider CEOs to be important sources and we write about what's going on with them as well. Right. And I've always been a bit envious of the editorial power of The Economist in terms of deciding what to showcase. And unfortunately, we don't have time to talk much about like the environmental coverage or the Amazon coverage of The Economist. But for just one example is that Amazon cover you guys did. And it wasn't that other people weren't writing about it. It wasn't. It's just that that had that platform that it got people's attention. It's great at judging like when it is the critical moment to put that on the cover. When is it going to have the most impact? You know, I think they kind of have a sixth sense for this stuff at The Economist. So... You know what's funny about that story, and we don't have to get into the details of it, but as you said, this was a time when a whole bunch of us were doing really important work on different aspects of the growing alarm about deforestation in the Amazon and how Bolsonaro was dismantling environmental policy. And I had been like working on this story for maybe a year. And for one reason or another, it at one point a trip was delayed, and at another point, you know, something else came up and then a colleague of mine who was helping out on one aspect of the story became business editor and then he kind of had less time. So we were feeling so guilty that this story hadn't come out yet and it hadn't come out yet and then came out and it felt to us like it was six months late. But it ended up coming out at the perfect time and at a time when the whole world was starting to pay attention. And then just a few weeks later, these fires started bringing even more attention onto the Amazon. And and we ended up feeling like the timing was right. But it is just interesting how sometimes in retrospect, a story that it felt like it sort of just happened to get the coverage it got at the time, then it feels like that was really important that it came out at that particular time. Right, right. It was almost like the public was... Like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say ready for it. But, you know, it's like the Amazon fires. Nobody could have seen that coming. And that was just on a different level and out of our control, basically. The public decided to latch onto it in that way. And, uh, you know, maybe if it had been published a year earlier, they wouldn't have. It's uh... Yeah, maybe we wouldn't have put it on the cover. I mean, it's, there's also a chance that Maybe we would have put it on the cover a year earlier and people would have started paying attention a year earlier and pressure would have started a year earlier. But maybe also something else would have happened the week that it was supposed to be on the cover. And because the Amazon hadn't quite reached that point in public awareness to become important enough, it would have gotten pushed off the cover and that story would never have been read. Right. And honestly, I mean, speaking honestly, do we really think that Bolsonaro sits and reads articles? No, he doesn't. Do you think he saw that cover? Yeah, he fucking saw that cover. (laughs) Like, so... Yeah, well, although if we're thinking about what impact it had with Bolsonaro, it probably only made him more stubbornly sticking to his path of uh, environmental denialism. Although I I think probably it made a difference with diplomats and business people who really do read The Economist and either weren't paying attention at all or were paying attention but thought that they could keep ignoring it and maybe us putting it on the cover in addition to all the reporting you were doing and the FT was doing and lots of other people kind of came and finally rose above the line at which something starts to become too loud to ignore. Right. So I'll just say for people who are interested, I will post a link to that story in the show notes. So check it out if you didn't see it at the time. I guess that would have been 2019. must have been. The Economist is not typically a publication that breaks really big 
time-sensitive scoops. It's more known for analysis. But in this case, just a week before the election in Honduras in 2017, through a source that I had in Honduras, I was leaked a tape of a training session for people who worked for the party of the president at the time and still the president in Honduras, teaching them all sorts of dirty tricks to mar ballots and basically guarantee that they would win the election. And I basically raced to get as much detail as I could to confirm this tape and its authenticity and how it fit into the scenario of the election. And we managed to publish it the day before the election and it caused a big stir, I think. And then the election ended up being extremely complicated and disputed. And you know, the OAS said it could not certify the election. And there are strong suspicions that the president did try to steal that election. And I think having published that tape was important because it was a bit of evidence. Mm-hmm. 